I'll admit there was a period of time when I was too jaded from the digital media industry to read any of its content. At my first writing job, I wrote seven stories a day, sometimes waking up as early as 6 a.m. to fit it all in. By the time I'd worked at a few different publications, I could tell when an article was actually an SEO grab masquerading as a legitimate piece of writing or a piece of clickbait meant to make people mad, and I wasn't interested in feeding into the machine with my own reading habits. While I'd like to think this particular era of digital media is on its way out, you still see shades of it when the latest viral moment prompts every outlet to scramble for its own unique take. So many websites are writing the same thing. This can be helpful. When Yellow Jackets was airing, I was so deep in the show and its fan theories that I read every perspective I could find in hopes of getting all the crumbs. But this strategy doesn't work universally. For instance, I consumed COVID content the same way in the first year of the pandemic, but I realized that this wasn't actually reading. It was anxiety spiraling. All this is to say I'm somewhat precious with what I consume and definitely read a lot less than perhaps you'd think for someone who calls themselves chronically online. I like pieces that work to clarify a moment with reason rather than drum up anxiety for clicks. And I have a natural aversion to reading whatever piece has my Twitter timeline in an uproar because it was probably designed to do just that. That was one of the first things I noticed about writing embedded. I no longer had to cater to SEO or try to get someone's attention in a timeline. We're writing for readers who, by nature of signing up, already want to read us. And so our coverage could be more thoughtfully catered to them in a way that feels helpful and not exploitative. Our best performing pieces for Embedded are often the ones that seek to make the reader feel understood. Our newsletter is about the internet, but rather than highlight what's dystopian about this time, I always try to focus on the things about it that are uniquely human or voice something we all experience that hasn't been formally put to paper. Similarly, the pieces I love and share with others aren't ones that are particularly spicy or that make me want to get up and go do something, but that reflect back to me a thought or experience that makes me feel seen. This isn't to say you need to try to broadly appeal to your readers. Something curating our My Internet series has taught me is that the internet may be getting bigger, but people still find and occupy their own particular quarters of it. 2020 National Book Award nominee Ruman Alam follows Mary-Kate and Ashley fan accounts. Former New York Times columnist Ben Smith is on geocaching Reddit, and writer Taylor Lorenz loves bird TikTok. (laughs) Investing in a niche may not reach the most readers, but the people you are writing for will be real and engaged and appreciative, which is ostensibly why we all started doing this. I've also learned that people will pay for writing, and we should continue to normalize that. For my internet, we always ask people what they pay for online, and people have named publications from the New York Times to Business Insider to Study Hall to, of course, their favorite substacks. But when you step back and look at social media as a whole, everyday people in the replies of comments are routinely astonished when something is paywalled. Sure, running into a paywall is annoying, but the fact that you're annoyed you can't read something is the reason to pay for it. If you want to read good stuff, then you have to free writers from the advertising model that forces quantity over quality. And that means people with the means to give their money doing so. If all else fails, I'll leave you with these two pieces of advice. Trust recommendations from humans, not algorithms, and treat your clicks like currency. Give them to the kind of content you want to see more of, not less.